Welcome back, Warriors. Tunse Sego Anibuju, Quainin Deluizi Pam Palmeter. I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over our traditional territories. And we come from all different nations, but we are united in our struggles to protect our lands, waters, and our peoples. One of the things that we do at the grassroots level is try to amplify each other's voices, especially Indigenous peoples who are on the ground defending their rights and our other relatives who are advocating for justice in a wide variety of forums. On today's show, we are following the Inuit protests against mining activities in their territories, which have the potential to significantly impact Inuit harvesting practices. Alika Idlauk is an Inuk who has been active in educating the public about what is going on all through her social media and her public outreach. She's reached out to individuals to try to help amplify the voices of the Inuit protesters on the ground. She comes from Nunavut. She's fluent in both Inuktitut and English and is grounded in her Inuit culture and traditions. She's currently working on her undergrad at Carleton University with an honors in law, human rights and social justice and a minor in indigenous studies. Thank you so much for coming on the Warrior Life podcast, Alika. Koyanami Pam for inviting me to this very important conversation. I am really looking forward to this. Um, as Pam just said, my name is Alika Ilhaw and I am from Kanyaktugapik in the Kikirtanik region of Nunavut. The English name is Clyde River of my community, which is located on Baffin Island in Nunavut. I am a mother to three kids, and I am currently doing my undergrad, doing a combined honors in law and human rights and social justice with a minor in Indigenous studies. I just want to first acknowledge that I am a uninvited guest at present time on Anishinaabe Algonquin territory. I say uninvited because I have never officially been invited by the original stewards of these lands. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to actually be here and on such short notice. I mean, that's kind of how we end up doing things at the grassroots level. When something happens, we just do what we can to rally each other's uh, forces and come together and try to get the word out. So given the context of everything that's going on up north, we really appreciate you taking the time here. Um, maybe you could, you know, talk about a little bit about you know, Inuit culture and history and the territory, because a lot of people who live in the South, you know, even Indigenous peoples don't always know just how expansive the territory is or, you know, how important your history is in the North. So Inuit are pretty unique in a sense that um, we were colonized just not that long ago. Uh, for example, my father is not even 70 years old yet. He was born in Idluviga, uh, closer to Mitimatadik, where the protesting is currently happening right now. My father was very much entrenched and lived the traditional lifestyle, which was completely living, coexisting with the land and being with the land in all that he did with the language, hunting, ways of being. Um, my father was colonized when he was six years old, when my family's uh, dogs were shot by the Hudson's Bay Company and RCMP in the 50s, which made it possible for the Canadian government to assimilate them into hamlets, which are also Inuit communities, and assimilate them so Canada can claim sovereignty over what we refer to as Inuit Nunanga today, Inuit land. Um, although Inuit were colonized much later, it also happened very fast and very tragically. A lot of Inuit have died through the processes of colonization. Inuit also have been forced to go to residential school, um, residential hospitals as well where 
our language and culture and traditions were trying to be stopped by the Canadian government, as I'm sure the Canadian government noticed that we had our own governing systems and legal systems in place, which would allow us to become a sovereign nation. Um, the Canadian government understood how important the resources would be in the future when it comes to extracting them and making money and maintaining this very capitalistic society, um, which is why it was very important for Canada to colonize us in the first place and to claim sovereignty before any other international states came and took the land. Inuit are very resilient. We still maintain a lot of our language, traditions, and cultures. We are still taught the knowledge, the research, and the education that has been gathered and maintained for a millennia. We still very much coexist with our natural world, with the animals, the land, and the waters. We still carry out our duties as respecting and speaking for the land. Um, this has been very prominent these past few weeks with what is going on in Nunavut, in the north part of Baffin Island today. Inuit lives have changed very drastically, just even in the short 50 years. A lot of Inuit today, the older generation, have literally watched their entire world change almost so differently every night, every day, there's something new. So much so that we have been having to adapt to new things almost on a daily basis, adapt to new words in our Inuktitut language and our ways of being and even our diet. So that's a little bit about Inuit. Well, and, and that's important for people to understand too, that Canada's assertion of sovereignty, so-called assertion of sovereignty, hasn't just impacted First Nations people, that it's also um, very much directed in the North. And, you know, Canada assumes its sovereignty up there when in fact it's always been the Inuit living up there and, you know, acting um, accordingly and, and protecting their territories. Now, one of the things, you know, about your educational background, it's not hard to notice. I mean, you're focused on Indigenous rights, human rights, social justice. I mean, how important do you think that kind of education is in order to be, um, you know, for your future work and your advocacy on the ground for uh, Inuit? I think it's very very important when trying to understand what has happened to you as a person that still affects you to this very day. Like the processes of colonization isn't directly impacting my father. It's also impacting myself, my siblings, my children very much. So it has become very important to me to look at why this would be done to people. It is very important to me to know what the purpose behind it was. I'm a strong believer that nobody is born with any hate in their How is it learned? How is it that this idea of colonialism can be continuous where it's even committing genocide and not being held accountable? Which has brought me to this journey in my academic life and I need to know, I need to learn, I need to know, I need to get the answers as to why this happened, why this keeps happening, and why it keeps getting upheld. It is important for me to understand the history around human rights, why it was created even, who decided that somebody or an organization was going to start saying what a human right is, or even laws. Why is it that this European legal system that we call common law and civil law in Canada, why does it trump Indigenous law? Why doesn't it recognize Indigenous law? It's these sort of questions that I have been trying to find answers for, which is why I think my education is so important, especially in studying the history of 
First Nations in the South, um, because let's face it, it was done to First Nations long before it was done to Inuit. And through my research and my education, I have seen it's almost like a formula that is being used not only within Canada with how First Nations are colonized, but it's done internationally. So it's almost like studying the playbook of this idea of a prominent governance that is so controlling to Indigenous peoples, ways of being, governance system, laws, everything. I'm pretty sure that your family and your community and, you know, everyone that knows you is pretty happy that you're engaged in these kinds of studies because I think, you know, human rights and the rights of the planet are going to be the two most significant issues going forward, you know, into eternity. I mean, literally human life and planet life are so interconnected and there's no group that knows that more than Inuit in the North who are the first to feel the effects of things like climate change or the impacts on their traditional harvesting practices. And it's one of the reasons why we have you here today. We want to um, talk to you about you know, in the last few days, we've heard just some media accounts about Inuit protests uh, that are happening, that were happening on the ground. I believe it was at the Mary River Iron Ore Mine. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, give us some background about, you know, what happened, what triggered it, and what are the important issues? <clears throat> what triggered it was this whole idea of Nunavut having been created for Inuit to have a voice in all of the affairs that is going to deal with our very existence. In 2011, um, an iron ore mine was approved by the Inuit organizations that are supposed to put Inuit lives and futures in their best interest, but there was a lack of consultation um, before they approved it, these Inuit organizations. So what has been happening is after it was approved, it was opened in 2014. And since 2014, Inuit in the Nunavut Baffin Island, North Baffin Island region have really seen the impacts the mine has had thus far, more specifically in Iperjuk, Arctic Bay, and Mitimatarik, Pond Inlet. The decline that they have seen in all the animals, both on the land and in the waters, are very drastic. It is very devastating to see and hearing about almost 50% of narwhals disappearing from that area and fish almost coming so rare where they used to be so vast, so rich in that area. With that came this whole movement from the elders feeling like their voices are not being heard, that these educated scientists who have no idea or no research, except for the past 50 years on the animals and the climate up there, are taking the spotlight on not the like saying that there are no damages from the, the iron ore mine that is up there at the moment. So what has moved this is Inuit have come together to ensure that all of our knowledges that have been accumulated for a millennia and the research and the education and what they have seen over the span of a millennia are being implemented and they are being heard. And it is very heartbreaking to hear because you're hearing these elders who want to speak to the previous elders who have now passed on because they were not given the opportunity to be consulted with and to voice their opinion. In the Inuit culture, everyone has a duty to do something within the community. Everyone has a duty to within our very existence as humans all over the world. The elders are our experts. They know everything and they fight for our future. They fight for our generations. This is how it has always been and this is how it is still today.
What has happened now is that the proposed phase two um, expansion of Baffinland mines at Mary River to extract iron ore, it, it has almost been approved without the full voices of Inuit being heard instead on behalf of the Inuit without even consulting them. To my knowledge, there hasn't been much sit down with any of the elders and the hunters in that region to be given the opportunity to say their concerns or to get the mine or to make the mine accountable for the damages that has already been done. They are questioning why these Inuit organizations are even considering phase two, given all of the evidence and the fact that the animals are disappearing, the waters are being poisoned. Why are they even considering phase two? Which then came a hearing for the past two weeks where the gold mine and these Inuit organizations were given the opportunity to do a lot of presentations on why the mine must go forward. During those, during that hearing, um, a lot of the Inuit elders were not given the opportunity to say their piece in the community. They were not given the space to talk about their knowledge and their expertise. Instead, there were people that are educated from the South that are just guests up there that are all of the sudden the experts on the land, the ecosystem, the animals, which has given a lot of the hunters this fear that our very existence is at stake. It has given a lot of Inuit fear that our very existence is at stake. It has given the elders the voices to speak up because our elders do not do that. They are very loving. They are very understanding. They are very welcoming. So for them to speak against this mine, it is very crazy to think that our elders are speaking up against something as this is not the way of our people. With that came a bunch of hunters, more specifically seven, that decided to go to the mine. They traveled for two days on the Arctic tundra in snowmobiles to go assert their rights and to assert their duties as the protectors and the speakers for the animal, the land, and our generations to come. Because it is their duty to ensure that our existence will be guaranteed for seven more generations. It is also their duty to speak and to listen to the elders, which I think they are doing very well. So that's a little background on why there is protesting right now. Um, I think it's a very, it is a very important cause. And a lot of people need to understand that they're not only fighting for the animals or the existence of Inuit, they are fighting for our world. Inuit know firsthand the effects of climate change and they understand if they don't start taking action now and go against all of our ways of being welcoming, being accepting and being understanding. If they don't change into this new world that they were forced into and to do things this way, they know that this is going to have major repercussions on everybody. One of the things as you were speaking, um, we saw some pictures in the media of what seal holes looked like when there is no mining around um, versus what the seal holes look like near the mine. And it's, you know, just covered in this red iron ore dust. And some of the hunters were saying that it scares the seals away, it scales the, uh, scares the whales away, and that generally animals and fish and others stay away so that it's actually 
negatively impacting the wildlife and their natural habitat, but also the ability of Inuit to provide food for their families, uh, like a country food or food from the land. Yes. Um, one of the protesters actually, because they have been there for a week now, they actually mentioned that for the first time in a very long time since the mine opened, they actually started seeing ptarmigans again because the traffic has come to a halt. Even the animals are speaking. Even the animals are coming back because the traffic and the destruction has been put to a halt. It is very sad to see all of those iron ore dust affecting all of the ecosystem up there. But it is is also affecting the people. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but a majority of Inuit, especially in the 50s and 60s, lungs are already scarred and already limited to the capacity of, of a healthy lung. And the iron ore dust actually attacks your lungs and gives you a lot of issues right away and down the road. And when you mention the sea mammals and everything, it's not only the dust that has caused them to go away and to get polluted, but it's also the traffic from all of the ships that come to carry out the iron ore. Um, as for the land animals, where the Mary River mine is currently, it's right where the, one of the main migration routes are. And if animals have been using that route for a millennia and it's already in their DNA to go that way, you can't just expect animals to change their direction and to change their ways in a day. So with the phase two expansion, it would actually double everything, including a rail railway, 110 kilometer railway coming right through the main migration route of these animals. So we're seeing a huge decline in the sea mammals and the animals today. But if this real world were to happen, it would double. Everything would double. The traffic in the oceans would double. The land taken and extracted would become massive. And what if there's an oil spill? The waters up there aren't even drinkable anymore in that area. So imagine what would happen if one of the ships had an oil spill or these chemicals got leaked into the ground and the waters. And I can't help but notice that the root of the problem is that the people who should be making the decisions over their territories, their health, their relationships with the animals and the ecosystem are the Inuit, like the Inuit people who actually live there. Um, but we heard in the media that ultimately this mining company applies to an organization to double its impact. And then the federal government uh, is the one who will approve it or yeah. not approve it. And I'm thinking that's like so many steps removed from the actual people who are the sovereign, self-determining, independent government of that area. And that makes no sense to me, but it also illustrates why we have so many problems. Yes, very much. It is very disheartening because um, I have studied the creation of Nunavut and why Nunavut wanted to be created by Inuit. And it was to ensure that our voices were heard, that we were not put at the back burner, that our future and our best interest would be prioritized. But with the way it was done, it has almost looked like it is working against us today. And they are supposed to voice our opinions, but none of the organizations have made a statement to say, to support Inuit actually in fighting against the phase two expansion. But after it goes to these organizations, it is then going to go to a minister, a minister who has never been up there, 
a minister that has no idea about our lived experiences, a minister that decides all of our Indigenous affairs when it comes to resources. That makes no sense. How can he make a decision if he hasn't even sat down with an elder to listen to the impacts this is going to have in the long run? Not only on Inuit, but it's going to start seeping everywhere. We know this with all of the conversations and the research that has been conducted with climate change. How is it that these organizations and these ministers are able to have a say in anything, anything at all? And they have never even been up there to understand that we need this food, we need this land, not only us as Inuit, but everyone. But Inuit do need the food right now. This should be the conversation that they should be having at this very moment. A lot of people are going hungry up there because of the cost of the food and the living and everything, because everything has to be airlifted or shipped up. Why are they not talking to them? Why are they even considering having phase two expansion and take more of our food, more of our livelihood, more of our very existence when they haven't even addressed one of the main problems that we face today, which is the lack of having food in Nunavut, especially more so now in Northern Baffin, where the animals are disappearing or they're contaminated. How is it these organizations and these ministers and the federal government should have any say? It is very disheartening to see what is happening and to know that someone, people that probably don't even really know who we really are, especially because they don't know how to speak Inuktituk, where translation and interpretation gets lost when spoken into English. They have no idea. So how is the minister of resources, how is he given the power to say anything on what is happening up there? And then on the other side, so not only do they have the power to say what's happening there in a place where it's not supposed to be the federal government having the the say, but then it's the failure to act on issues that are critical. Okay, so you want to assume jurisdiction over this area? What are you doing about housing and food and healthcare and education? Because they seem to have no problem bringing in housing and ma- and food for man camps. I mean, there's what, hundreds and hundreds of people working in those man camps, not unlike man camps at pipelines or other industries all over Canada. There is no place on earth that they won't bring housing and water and health care and entertainment and really good quality food to man camps. But when it comes to the people in their own territory, you mean to tell me that that's not possible for the Inuit? I I find that so hard to believe. It, does, it doesn't really seem like that. And a lot of discussions that have been had within the Inuit communities that are struggling in moldy houses, their houses are literally falling apart because they're so moldy. They have skin issues, respiratory issues because of the conditions of the house. On top of that, I know a lot of families that are lucky if they have two full meals a day, especially in the northern part of Baffin Island. So it makes you question how is it that the mine in just a short few years can create these living quarters that have no mold, that don't have any issues with the drift from outside coming in and making everything cold, and they're eating like kings. They have all of the food that they need. Well, people are hungry, literally hungry because of the cost of living not far from the mine. And they are hungry for their country food that they can't even get anymore. It is, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you create more problems up there when you haven't even looked at 
the housing crisis, the healthcare crisis, the food crisis, the mental health crisis that we are still trying to piece together from colonization. We're new to this. We're new to this entire world that has been forced upon us. And it almost seems as though the government of Canada came up and said, here, this is how you're going to live. Here's all these houses. They were able to build all these houses in a short period of time. But now that we're actually established and we depend on the government, we have been left abandoned. We have been left abandoned to pick up the pieces to say, you know what? How are we going to do this? How are we going to fix our housing crisis? It's not as simple as going out in the forest to chop down wood. We have no trees. We can't do that sort of stuff. It's not as easy as growing a garden. We can't grow gardens. It's all permafrost, and now it's melting. So for these ministers to even consider or have a conversation about approving this mine without even looking at our socioeconomic crisis that we are in right now, they just want to add to it. Yeah, and they're yeah. the ones that caused it. Yes. And it seems as though just in the past 50 years, they're not even coming to offer real help. I still wonder if Mark Miller has gone up to see what is happening. He's an Indigenous Affairs Minister. This should be his priority, not only going up to Nunavut, but going all across Canada and seeing how Indigenous peoples here live today. And then to do something about it. So here we have, you know, a special rapporteur from the United Nations on food security come to Canada some years back, take a look at the situation uh, amongst the Inuit and, and find that they have the highest level of food insecurity of all people living in Canada. And the government at the time just ignored that. So it's not like Canada doesn't know oh, we've got a food security issue. Um, and then, then you've also got the scenario where these companies, mining companies, forestry com pipelines, they're all infamous for signing agreements with Indigenous communities, promising things like you will get the contracts, we'll hire 50% of your employees. Yet when we looked at the statistics just for that one mine, although they promised to hire 50% Inuit, it's less than half of that. And we're like, you know, so they use that as a defense. Oh, well, we have this mind, but it's going to benefit the Inuit. And you have to wonder, where does the majority of the money go? Where does the majority of the benefit go? Because we know the people at the man camps are taken care of far before mm -hmm. the Inuit are. And then ultimately, whose resources are they anyway? They're coming from Inuit territory. So it would seem to me that... If anybody should a decide if it gets extracted, how it gets extracted, how to minimize impact on the environment if it gets extracted, and who benefits, all of those decisions should be the Inuit first, and then they can decide if they want to partner with others to do that. But governments sit back and allow this disparity to continue. Yes. And it has really shown because the elders are asking the same exact question in Inuktitut, but the interpretation and the translation seems like it keeps getting lost or it's ignored. Like who decided these mines could come in? Who decided that it is okay to ruin the land, land that belongs to each and every one of us that are guests on this journey of life here on earth? Inuit believe that we are stewards of the North, just as the First Nations are stewards of the South. It is our job to speak for the land, for the animals, the ecosystem, because they cannot speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it seems all over the world, internationally, these big corporations come into our recently colonized <laughs> homes to take advantage of the situation. It's like you are throwing someone from a completely different world and throwing them onto earth and say, this is how you're going to start living your life. 
you have to change your language just to <laughs> understand what is happening in the world and your realities. You have to change your ways to accommodate these minds that are coming in. It is ridiculous to think that the world seems to be okay with this keep happening. We should start asking questions and start holding these big corporations accountable because I believe they can do better. Yeah. They are billion dollar industries. I am sure they can hire engineers to create these things that are going to be environmentally safe. I believe that they have the research and the resources to create these crazy good plans that is going to help the land and still them benefit. It is crazy to think that none of these talks are happening and they're still coming into our lands internationally and doing what they please without governments interfering to speak for the people. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because, I mean, we find generally here in the South, mainstream media doesn't tend to cover a lot of happenings in Inuit territory, um, whether it be Inuit politics or thing, social issues that are happening on the ground. Every once in a while, they might show a crisis issue, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of Inuit voices represented in mainstream media. And, you know, one of the things I want our listeners or viewers to understand is the difference between protests in the South and protests in the far North, like what that can mean. Um, because as you, as you were talking earlier in this podcast, you were talking about how it took these hunters two days just to get to that area. And, you know, we're not talking about two days on the Florida panhandle in the sun and wind, you know, we're talking about far north, Arctic, in the winter type of conditions. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how serious this issue must be for people to protest in these kinds of conditions? Because we don't often hear about a lot of Inuit protesters. No, um, there's a good reason to that. This whole idea and this concept of protesting is very foreign to Inuit. This is not our ways of doing anything. There's not even a real word to really explain what we know as protesting. But these hunters decided to go protest because this is how this whole new world does things. They go out and they stop roads and airplanes from happening just so they can get some type of recognition and their voice is heard. So these seven hunters from Ipeljuk and Mittimatari came together and traveled two days on crazy life or death situation, Arctic terrain. Because your life can change in a split moment. It can become very dangerous and you literally have to decide on the spot and your life will depend on it. They went there with hardly any resources because it is very hard to get things where they are and food and gas and everything else is extremely expensive. They put a lot on the line. Some of them put their jobs on the line. They left their families going on this journey to the mine just to speak for our future and our, for our generations. And they have made that very clear that they are not there for themselves but because they love who we are and they are worried for our existence. So with that, the dangers of the Arctic terrain and just being out even in communities sometimes can be very dangerous, especially during polar bear season. You can walk from one house to the other and your life can be in danger. There are all these realities that Inuit have been facing and have lived through and they have thrived and it has never stopped them from living their life. So this two-day journey, yes, I bet you a lot of people in the South 
wouldn't be able to make it without the help of Inuit. You would either get lost, fall through the ice, anything, anything can happen in a split moment. So they went, they traveled two days with their rifles because every hunter know you cannot go out on the land without rifles for your food, for, and sometimes it can become safety if you encounter a polar bear. And for those of you that don't know about polar bears, they're not like grizzly bears or black bears. They're more like a cat and they're massive. They're very strong and they're very territorial. They would attack people. So it's ideal to go out as a hunting party with rifles to make sure that you will get to your destination safely. So it is crazy to me that I saw a statement from Baffinland saying that there were hunters outside with their guns, making them sound like they were terrorists. They are not terrorists. Number one, it is called Nunavut. It is called our land. That is their land. Number two, they were not outside with big guns. They were outside with rifles because that is what hunters do. And that is the culture up there. And you need to have a rifle just to survive. Everyone should know that. But it just shows how privileged people at the mine are if they don't understand that you need rifles to protect yourself up there, that you need to be, you need to travel as a group to ensure your survival to get to your destination. Well, and that's not uncommon. I mean, the whole, you know, mainstream media has had a long history. They're trying to improve now. But, you know, for many decades, you know, government officials and mainstream media have long portrayed Native peoples as dangerous, as threats to public safety. And anyone who protested um, was considered to be, you know, dangerous, you know, put on terror watch lists. And of course, of course, Inuit out on the land would have rifles, just like if Mi'kmaq people were out in, in the forest for an extended period of time, they're probably going to have rifles, they're probably going to have knives, they're probably going to have rope, they're going to have survival things. And simply the act of defending your territory, which all peaceful land defense, that doesn't you know mean that they're a threat. And one of the things that I found was significant was that um, once news got out, and I, sh I should say, uh, that's another difference between the South. In the South, if, if, I'm, if I see a protest, I, I can literally go live on Facebook and announce it, or we can communicate with one another. Um, you know, I watched a video on YouTube of a hunter who had to call in with a phone, and it, it was like a cell phone videotaping a phone, you know what I mean? Like there had to be multiple steps it, just to be able to get the voices of those people out. It was a satellite phone because there is no cell phone reception up there. It's a satellite phone, which then they called their relatives to make sure that their side of the story was being talked about properly. Especially with how the media is saying that Inuit are only after royalties. We can't eat money. This whole concept of money is very new to us. What we call money is kinoya, pretend face. Do you understand that? <laughs> like our elders understand money, but they don't understand the root of money. They do not understand money, how the Southern population views money. So all this propaganda about what is happening and nobody is actually going to the actual people who have the real stories, which are the elders and the hunters that are fighting for the land. They are not fighting for royalties. They are putting their lives on hold. And it's very important for everybody to recognize that Inuit are not like this. Again, I say that because a lot of elders made it very clear throughout the hearing that we are understanding, that we are honest. 
We just want a reciprocal relationship with everything and everyone in this natural world, especially on this company that has come up there and has really disrupted our ways of living and our ways of being. So I am completely, I don't even know what to say about the media, especially given the fact that a week ago today, before all of this started happening, I was reading an article and it was published. And it was from an RCMP's wife who had spent three years in Alpviat. And he, she called Inuit primitive and simple, that we didn't even know the concepts of sex. So I look at that and I think, really? You can't listen to the news. If in 2021, people are still referring us as primitive and simple, and it's being allowed to happen. She, for, to my knowledge, she hasn't even been called out or held accountable for what she has said with her statement that comes from a place that is very uneducated and not open-minded at all. So when I look at the news, it makes me wonder if they know anything, really. If you are still saying that we're simple and primitive and you're trying to make the Inuit hunters look like they're terrorists and that Inuit are after royalties, you should really question yourself. Very much. Because we are not simple. We are not primitive. We are not terrorists. We are nothing like that. And if people actually got educated and started talking to an Inuk, they would see that we are actually a very loving people. Actually, all Indigenous nations across Canada are a very loving people. We are not just drunks on the side of the road. We're not just angry Inuit and angry Indians. We are not that. So it is very disheartening that people are even having conversations in what is being published in the news. It is crazy, especially in 2021 when we should, quote, know better because we are an advanced society. When we saw solidarity protests popping up across Nunavut, um, and people speaking out and saying, oh, no, we actually support the hunters. Yeah, we support the voices of the people on the ground. And I think that was a really important reinforcement because what, you know, media or government or the extractive industry often try to do for First Nations in our experience is if you see some First Nation protesters, they try to vilify them. Oh, well, they're just the troublemakers of the community or don't listen to them because these leaders over here have said yes and really try to isolate them and and portray them in a bad light. But then when you see solidarity protests and other people speaking up and saying, wait a minute, they have a right to exercise their voice and their concerns. And the same thing was happening with the Inuit. I think you saw a change, at least uh, at the social media level of people saying, you know, this is, this is a pretty significant issue. Uh, people didn't know that the company was trying to double its, its, you know, it's take and that that meant railways and doubling of shipping. And as soon as the word shipping was out, everyone thought about all of the southern resident killer whales on the B.C. coast that would be impacted by the extra um, shipping coming from Trans Mountain Pipeline and all of those other pipelines. And it's like, oh, wait, yeah, shipping does actually kill animals. It's the same thing in in your territory. And I think people were starting to connect the dots. Um, but it seems like it's, it's still the yeah. primarily the job of Indigenous peoples like yourself to have to do the education part because you, you won't see it otherwise. No, you really won't. There's a lot of Canadians still today that still think that we live in igloos, you know, <laughs> like that's crazy. So, but it is a very beautiful thing to see that Inuit all over Inuit Nunangat have come together in solidarity for one common goal. 
and that one common goal has become our very existence on who we are, not only as Inuit, but also as people. Mm-hmm. It has taken a lot of guts for Inuit to get again, we are very loving. It has taken a lot to stand up against somebody in fear that you might hurt them. Protesting with Inuit is not the same as how we do it down here in the South. Protesting up there is standing together as our ancestors has always done, but in a new way. Like I said before, this whole concept of protesting is very new. So it's very incredible to see even an elder organizing a protest in his own community to ensure that the Inuit hunters and the elders are not alone. Because, well, quite frankly, we have started to feel alone. I, and a lot of the talks at the NERB um, meetings that were happening for two years, or sorry, for two weeks, you could hear the elders saying that. They were not being heard. They are just Inuit. They are never heard. Just as their elders have never been heard. Now they have died without being heard. So when looking at the protest and the solidarity that all these Inuit communities are showing is a beautiful thing. And I just really want to state it's not the same as protesting down here. It is not the same. Once people hear this podcast or or watch it on YouTube, they're going to actually understand things a little bit better, how significant it is. Um, how different it is, how meaningful it is to um, the Inuit. And one of the things that really concerned me, because I'm, you know, once you reached out to me and said, hey, look at what's happening. um, The first thing I did was start doing a Google search of media of what's happening on the ground. And we saw, um, you know, terrible comments coming from the mining company. And then we saw yesterday that they were going to go to court and try to get injunctions, which if you know about First Nation experience, it's often the first thing they do. They either send in law enforcement to arrest us or they go to court and get injunctions. And statistically, uh, courts almost always side with the extractive industry. So we were like, oh no, please don't do this to the Inuit because you know, they they already don't have a lot of money. And then, um, you know, we were really concerned about that because we figured, you know, here's these hunters out there, you know, two days away from their homes, you know, having to live on whatever they brought with them. How are they also going to be able to afford hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, which, you know, you know, will be needed. And so we were wondering if there was any kind of GoFundMe page or any kind of way that in which that we can support the people on the ground. Um, Even though we heard this morning that the um, protests might be temporarily suspended while there's discussions, we know that at least in the First Nation experience, those discussions don't always go well and that the you know protests could resume what can we do to support uh the inuit first i think it's very important that everyone gets educated and look at the whole court process in itself um especially with covid19 happening right now and nunavut been mostly in the um, clear of covid19 um there's a few things everyone should know Number one, you can't go to Nunavut right now without isolating for two weeks to make sure that you don't have the virus because it would be very devastating to Inuit. So one of the main questions I have had is how were Baffinland's lawyers able to travel to Iqaluit, which is the capital of Nunavut, so fast to go to court to stop The protesters, and I put that in heavy quotations. How did that happen? That's that's a question that we should all be asking ourselves. Another thing was Inuit were not 
protesting at the mine to stop everything. They were still letting emergency traffic to come in. They're not, they're not trying to hurt anybody. They just want their voices heard. They want to sit eye to eye equally to talk about this. So how is it that this was supposed, how, how did this happen so fast? How did it happen so fast that RCMP officers, a plane full of RCMP officers flew to Mitimatarik yesterday and three trucks went and got them? Are they coming from the south? Have they been isolating for two weeks? All this protesting and everything have only been gone for, has been going on for a week. So there's a lot of questions that I think we should all be asking ourselves and really sit down and look at the situation as a whole. Because it is very important to know that these hunters in protesting for a week and getting this injunction and everything. They have finally been able to sit down with our Inuit organizations to listen to their concerns and to answer their questions. It took a protest. It took going to court and sending RCMP officers, three trucks full to Mitimatarik, which is very problematic in itself given the history Inuit have with the RCMP and the dog slaughter and everything else that has been done. And more importantly, what has happened recently with us being called simple and primitive. It's almost like a, how dare you do that? That is insulting. It is insulting that Inuit have had to go out and start protesting just so their organizations will actually sit down with them. So with that, we have started a GoFundMe page to help with the legal fees that I am sure will start coming in. As I personally know, this is the only beginning of what is to come. And I really do hope that everybody can come to a consensus sooner rather than later and do this equally in a, and in a reciprocal relationship. I think it is very key for everyone to understand that Inuit are willing to sit down and listen to Baffinland. It is very important to know that we are very much open to talking about and hearing both sides of the stories to see where we can go from this. But it is also very important to be cognizant of the fact that we are still in a socioeconomic crisis and why add more to it? And it's pretty hard to have good faith conversations at the end of an RCMP weapon, which they don't use for hunting. I'm, I'm glad you exactly. raised all that because that's the stuff. I didn't hear about that in the media. I didn't know that lawyers flew in. I didn't know RCMP officers flew in. Like that's the stuff that gets selectively not reported on, which would cause alarm for Canadians to understand because we all know that Inuit don't, don't represent any threat to anybody. You know, there's no public safety threat, um, including protesters. And so to, to actually fly in that many RCMP is actually pretty, not that I'm surprised because that's how they treat, our, you know, First Nations, but during COVID to actually enter your territory in that uh, circumstance, that's, that's really concerning. It's also very, con it's also very concerning that they are there after not even dealing with the statement of us being simple and primitive language that has been used to colonize indigenous peoples and to minimize us. Something apparently the RCMP almost looks like still believes because we haven't even gotten an apology yet, but instead they sent three truckfuls of RCMPs. That is not to say that all RCMP are like this. I do know because they're only human too. They're just puppets carrying out the government's dirty work. I understand that. But given our history, I find it very disgusting that it has come down to this when there is absolutely no threat 
We are peaceful people. That is why we were colonized. We are a loving, understanding people. This is why we are in the crisis that we are in today. Nobody is talking about retaliation or hurting anybody. They're not even talking about hurting Baffinland, the mind that is ruining and putting our existence on the line. So why are there RCMP officers up there? Or everywhere else in all Indigenous communities all over Canada telling us what is right and what is not just in the past 500 years when we have been on these lands and governing ourselves with our own laws and legal systems very much in place. We know how to deal with our affairs. We don't need outsiders or visitors coming in to tell us this is how it's going to be. We do not need RCMP up there, especially that amount when there is no threat. And that's what we've been saying, because they never fly in to protect the Indigenous peoples. So they're not there for the Inuit. They're there for the mining company, just like when they fly into Wet'suwet'en territory. They're not there to protect the women and children and people in, in that nation. They're there to protect coastal gasoline pipeline. And that's where, you know, Canada's priorities are really topsy-turvy. And oftentimes, you know, Canadians are left with the impression, oh, that's an Inuit problem, or that's a Wet'suwet'en or Mi'kmaq or, you know, Guyankahaga problem. But, you know, I watched a short video that you posted on your Facebook, and you made a really powerful point that all of these issues around protecting the water, the land, the animals, the human beings, addressing climate change, that's not an Inuit problem. That's a human problem. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of expand on that because I I feel like that's one that's a really powerful way to end this podcast because I was really moved by your video. Um, what I mean by a human problem is it is all of our problem. Each and every one of us are affected by all of these disasters that are happening from Mi'kmaq territory to Wet'suwet'en to north to south, all four corners of Canada and the world. All of these disasters that we have been trying to fight, even though everyone may think that it is our problem as Indigenous peoples because it is being done on our lands. It's not only our problem. We're also fighting for each and every one on this planet because we all know the devastating impacts it's going to have on humanity. And this is something that I have heard being talked about through these conversations about climate change. But it seems like there has become a big divide on the issues of climate change and what an Indigenous issue is. It is very important that everyone recognize and see that all of these disasters happening on our planet, our only planet, we do not have a choice to go to Mars and continue living like this. If our earth gets destroyed, we will too. So it is very frustrating to hear that all these things are an Enoch problem, it's a Mi'kmaq problem, it's a Cree problem. Mm -hmm. No, it's everybody's problem. And if you really look at our languages to see how we express ourselves or explain who we are, just as we do as me being an Inuk and us calling ourselves Inuit, we are actually saying that I am human. I am Inuk. We are all Inuit. We are all people. We are all humans. At the end of the day, Today, we are using our knowledge, our research, and our education that we have been using for a millennia to ensure that humanity continues to survive. So this is not an Inuk problem. This is not an Indigenous problem. This is all of our problem. This is humanity's problem. Thank you so much for taking so much time in the middle of everything that's going on to, you know, once again, 
educate Canadians, Americans, the world, everybody who's listening about the importance of this. And, you know, I really call upon our listeners or our viewers to take positive, concrete action. Because once you educate yourself, once you learn, then you have an obligation to do something. Whatever your background or skills are, take some action to support the Inuit. And it may be, you know, to contribute to the GoFundMe page, and I'll, and I'll post a link to that. But we have to support the Inuit tomorrow and next year and the year after that, whether or not there's an issue in the media. Because we know there's always ongoing issues. And the Inuit are the first to, you know, suffer from the impacts of climate change. And we all have an obligation to act on that. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and sharing your incredible knowledge and insight about all of these issues. Like, we really appreciate it. I just want to say thank you, too, for giving me the space to talk about this very important issue that we are all in this together, whether we know it or not. This is all of our issue. And I really hope that everyone hears that message throughout this podcast. But I really say a big to you for this conversation that we had. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to Inuit voices and not what is being put out by news outlets. <laughs> so thank well, you. Well, Alan, thank you. And again, thank you to the listeners, viewers for taking the time to learn more. You're now obligated to take some action to support the Inuit. Um, you can like, subscribe, share this podcast, the information in it, the videos. You can share all of this information. And for more information, you can go to my website at www.pampometer.com. And I'll also post links to um, all, all of these media um, outlets in, that, are, that are reporting the facts um, to P Inuit social media so that you know who's on the ground and who's saying what. Um, Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag.